Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May the 3rd, 2019. This is episode 2431 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Friday, Friday, Friday. So it's time for a listener, uh, I'm sorry, an expert counsel Q&A show for the week. Uh, and I got a really good lineup to, for you guys today. I got some new stuff and I got some funny stuff, I guess. What do you, what do I mean by that? Well, we'll, we'll explain it when we get to it. Uh, we're gonna let you know again about the episode 2500, how you can be part of it. I got the first edition of the new segment called YouTube Channel of the Week. Got a great one for you. Got an update from Paul Wheaton on his Kickstarter. He was a little worried he might not hit his goal with his quick Kickstarter. He's blown it out of the water. He's got some stretch goals and a lot of cool stuff that's in this book. I'm going to tell you today how you can help out, and we're going to hear from Sir Paul himself on where he's at with it. We got truth versus hype about the deadly kissing bug. This is one I instigated. Um, I poked my old buddy, old man Bones, got him up out of his bed so he could tell us about the deadly kissing bug and, and the, the reality behind it. Um, Saw a lot of stuff going around about the deadly kissing bug on Facebook. And, well, I'll save any further thoughts I have for when you hear his during his segment. And then I'm, I have something I'm calling, calling a, ram, a random assembly of nonsense. Uh, nonsense, that is, from LFTN19's workshop. What is that? Living Free in Tennessee uh, 2019 Spring Workshop that Nicole Sauce did. At the same time, I was doing my pond workshop down here. Uh, Nicole was there with Patrick Rohrman, with Jess Mills, with Technical Redneck, uh, with Sean Mills. And, uh, well, I'll just tell you, there's nothing useful as far as the information in this short segment. But since they sent it in, I'm going to go ahead and play it. And I'll tell you kind of where it comes from and why you might want to make it out here this fall for more silliness like this at my workshop. Uh, we have a, a question on dealing with allergies in dogs for our veterinary uh, expert council member, uh, Dr. Kelly. Growing pastured turkeys and shelters for them with Darby Simpson of the Grass-Fed Life. Uh, big news about batteries, some important news and some kind of urgent emergency type news from Stephen Harris. The concept of timing the market versus something like day trading and how that gets confused. And the reason that, you know, good money managers do time markets or they don't really earn a living for they don't they don't earn their living, honestly. Uh, of course that will come from John Pugliano. And then I have a question that's kind of up John's alley, but I think it's one I could handle just fine on my own on life insurance. In this case for the young and single. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a lesson in life insurance today. Not real deep down into the weeds, just some top-level thoughts on why, yes, life insurance is for younger people and the considerations in making the right decision for yourself. We'll have all of that and more in just a minute. Before we get into that, I want to remind you guys that episode 2500 is coming. We are, what, 70, 69 episodes away from episode... 2,500. That's a landmark number. It just seems like an important number to hit 2,500 episodes of the Survival Podcast. So I set up the jerk hotline. So I would love it if you would call in and tell me why I'm a jerk, how I messed up your life by making it better. 
Uh, it started out as a joke years and years and years ago. Like the first year, like 2008, I said, you know, something to the effect, if you pay off all your debt, you're never going to call me and go, Jack, you jerk. I paid off all my debt. Now I have all this stupid money around and I don't know what to do with it. People started doing it about three or four years ago. I started getting my first Jack, you're a jerk, calls and emails. I like them so much. Let's how we're going to commemorate the 2500 episode of TSP. It will be all you guys. I'll just introduce it real quick and play all the calls. You can say basically, Jack, you're a jerk because. And then tell me the good things in your life that have come from TSP. And not just me, but our communities and sub-communities, like the forum, the Facebook page, the state-level groups, the Zello channel, you know, uh, individual meetups and stuff like that. I want to hear about it in episode 2500, your chance to go down in history as part of a landmark episode of the Survival Podcast. The last time we did this was episode 1000. I think the show went something like four hours and 50-something minutes. So... Uh, be part of it. Yeah, you know, there's room for everybody. And the jerk hotline. Don't call the think line. The jerk hotline is 877-644-1345. Uh, next up, YouTube channel of the week. I'm going to start doing this segment on Fridays. I just thought about it. And I think Friday is the best day for the YouTube channel of the week because YouTube's something you watch and then you got a weekend ahead of you. And hopefully I'll find some binge worthy channels for you. I think this one is. It's called Green Dreams Florida with Pete Canaris. Now, let me tell you how I, I found uh, this uh, channel. I'm not even really sure what I was looking for or why I ended up watching this video. I think I was like kind of background watching videos. And, you know, then they get the associated videos and they just play. And one with a dude I've seen before named Rob Greenfield came up. And Rob's a guy that... Like, he crossed the whole country one time, and he lived on basically dumpster diving and stuff like that. Well, he's got a new project he's about a 100 and some odd days into now, and he's living in Florida. And he has this tiny house in the back of somebody's yard, and he's kind of changing the neighborhood because he's putting his front yard gardens in, doing programs, helping single-parent families, startup gardens, uh, free seed exchanges, all kinds of cool stuff. But his, his deal is he has to go two years Uh, he has to go two years 100% based on what he can grow and forage. Like he can't even go to somebody's house and have dinner. Everything he consumes. Like it, to, to put it to the point, like he, he made salt from the ocean water and he said it keeps clumping together. And then uh, the guy that was filming it said something like he put some rice in there to keep it from clumping. And he said, but if I accidentally eat the rice, I've broken the rules. That's how extreme this guy's being. So, It was a different channel I was watching that I saw it on. And then Pete Canaris' Green Dreams Florida channel came up with another video on it. And I, so I watched it. I thought he did a much better job uh, with the interview and documentation of what was going on there with Rob's project. So I started looking at some of his other videos. Guys, this channel rocks. This stuff is well done. If you like self-sufficiency, self-reliance, especially coming from kind of the... Uh, permaculture, grow-your-own, homesteading uh, angle. You're going to love this dude's channel. The video I'm talking about has 665,000 views. The channel itself has 66,000 subscribers. I think you should uh, definitely be one of them. You should get by the channel. I have a link in the show notes today. 
Uh, and it's a pretty recent video, the ones with Rob Greenfield. You can look those up right on his channel there. And remember, when you subscribe to his channel or my channel or anybody's channel that you actually think the content's valuable, right next to the subscribe button on YouTube's a little bell. If you click that bell, whenever they upload a video, you'll get an email saying, hey, your, your guy that you like put us a new video. That way you'll know about it. And that helps us that put content on YouTube out a lot. Because it's all about views on YouTube. It's not just about views for the, the, the sake of getting views. This is something you guys need to know about YouTubers you want to support. It's really a good idea if you want to support them that when they have a new video out, you go watch it. Because if that video can get, let's say, a thousand views in the first day, then it gets a lot more traction with being associated with other videos and things like that. I won't get all into their algorithms for that, but it just it does. A video that gets a lot of views quick, it doesn't have to be huge, but just a lot quick, it tends to get a lot more traction and you get a lot more associations with other videos and good stuff like that. So anyway, I am open to suggestions for YouTube channels. TSPC in the subject line as always, whenever you send me email, Jack of the Survival Podcast.com, of course. The email address, but just if you have a YouTuber you really dig, let me know about them, and we will start putting out one a week on Fridays. All right, and with that, I, I mentioned in the uh, the lead up here that Paul Wheaton has smashed his goal on Kickstarter with his new book about basically positive solutions in your own backyard instead of being mad at the bad guys. And then he put out a stretch goal and he smashed it, and then he put out another stretch goal and he smashed that too. And this, this book, I think, is one of those things that really has an opportunity to open a lot of minds. By, instead of trying to be, here's everything in the world about how to garden. Here's a little bit about gardening. Here's a little bit about rocket mass heaters. Here's a little bit about everything. And if you think about it, a lot of you guys that listen to this show, that's what got you. You tuned in long enough that I gave you one thing and you said, I can do that. And you did it. And then you did it and you said, that felt good. And now I have this thing or I have this additional resiliency in my life. And because of this, now I'm ready to, ready to take another step. That's what I think this is really all about. Informing the informed, but also informing the uninformed and getting people to take one or two steps down the path. Once you do that, a journey begins. So, Paul, what's been going on with this amazing Kickstarter? Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com giving you an update on our Kickstarter. And that's because Sean and I wrote a book called Building a Better World in Your Backyard Instead of Being Angry at Bad Guys. Uh, it has blown past two stretch goals and is now at about $56,000. Previously on the Survival Podcast, we talked about a bit about what is in the book a super condensed permaculture book with a strong focus on why, with a teasing of how, complete with hundreds of footnotes. Uh, Jack, I sent you a uh, an early copy of the transcript. I'm not sure you got a chance to look at it, but I think that it has a lot of stuff in it that, that you would like. Uh, it seems that most people are stuck in angry mode, We just want to install a huge toolbox on those brains to actually do something for themselves, which actually makes the changes they want. So the folks listening to this uh, could get a stack of the books to hand out to those people who are stuck. Uh, on the Kickstarter, there's a full table of contents and a lot more details. Oh, 
and reviews. Uh, check out the FAQ on the Kickstarter for a link to about a dozen reviews. Uh, we've had, uh, I think so far, the reviews have been really, really positive. And, and of course, the only people that could review it are the people that were previewing the transcript uh, to give feedback and things like that. Uh, we had an idea for oodles of stretch goals, mountains of stretch goals, heaps of stretch goals, so many stretch goals. All of these creators want to see our Kickstarter hit the big time. If half the people listening to this podcast supported at the $100 level, everybody would get a big stack of our books, plus the book Clean with Cleaners You Can Eat by Raven Ranson, uh, the three DVD set as streaming World Domination Gardening. And so that's the one where one DVD is about culture, one DVD is about ponds, and one DVD is about swales. Uh, the book Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist by Michael Judd. The uh, Homestead 8-inch Rocket Mass Heater Plans by Erica Wisner. These are brand new plans that she just came out with just like a week ago. And uh, uh, they're the best plans that she has ever made. And they feature the Rocket Mass Heater that you can see in uh, the, uh, the DVD, uh, Building a Cobb-Style Rocket Mass Heater. And it's also what's featured in her new book, uh, The Rocket Mass Heater Builder's Guide. Uh, four gift codes for Davenhoit's Giant Solar Food Dehydrator Plans. Uh, the book Organic Pools DIY Manual by David Pagan Butler. So basically a swimming pool with no chlorine. It's a full ecosystem. Uh, an audiobook version of Building a Better World in Your Backyard. So our, our book will be uh, converted into an audiobook. Uh, the documentary Chimerical. And so I've got a podcast covering this documentary from years ago, but it's, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, the, the documentary shows a family where they're taking away their conventional cleaners and replacing them with their organic equivalent. And the transformation of the family from the beginning of the documentary to the end is dramatic. The book Dairy Farming the Beautiful Way by Adam Klaus. The book The Scoop on Poop by Dan Shearis. Uh, oh, and here's a huge one. 70 video presentations by 52 speakers from Permaculture Voices 1, including presentations by Jacques Spirko. <laughs> so uh, I know uh, uh, Jack was there. I was there. Willie Smits was there. Toby Hemingway. You know, all all the bigs. It was it was an amazing event, and so all seventy presentations, uh, plus all thirty two video presentations from the Eat Your Dirt Summit. Uh, Another thing is everybody will get access to the boot camp program and certain events here at Wheaton Labs. So, like, for example, we're going to do the PEP1 event here in about a month. And uh, everybody who has been here before or has what we call the gapper fee covered uh, gets to come to this event for free. Uh, seven additional microdocs. So these are our small uh, uh, documentaries, uh, generally 15 minutes to over an hour. Uh, and so first there's the how to weld. And that one's about, I think that's about an hour. Uh, we've got a new microdoc that just came out a few weeks ago 
on skittable structures and porta cabins. I think that's a little more than a half an hour. I think I've got 19 skittable structures in that microdoc. Uh, the, the rocket season extender and greenhouse rocket mass heater. I think that one is a little over half an hour. Uh, so basically we've got a, a rocket mass heater designed for use in a greenhouse, but we put it outside to really put it through the test. And so we call it the season extender. Uh, a new microdoc out on Wafati Natural Buildings. Uh, that one's a little more than half an hour. Uh, the, uh, the microdoc for the Easy Bake Coffin. So this is a device that we have here that takes very low energy to do cooking over multiple days. Uh, I believe that microdoc is about an hour long. Uh, welding a J-tube grate. It's about a half hour long. Um, basically, uh, kind of goes along with the how to weld video really well. Uh, and finally, we've got a video uh, that Justin Rhodes took. It's part of his private collection. Uh, you have to, um, but it's like uh, a 45-minute long video that he took here at Wheaton Labs and at Base Camp. It's about 45 minutes long. Uh, another thing that everybody gets is the uh, early or rough versions of four other books I've been working on: uh, a Hugel Culture book, a book on fallacy, a book on doing Kickstarters, and a book on community. And we've got it. We've come up with an interesting thing for this Kickstarter uh, to offer more candy on top of all that big pile where uh, the the top contributors. So, for example, the first item on this list is a ticket to this year's permaculture design course. And we'll be doing six tickets. And so uh, what we'll do is we'll send out an email. We'll send an email saying, OK, everybody who wants to come, send an email to this email address and then we'll go through that and we'll sort them in order of uh, who have contributed the most to the Kickstarter and the top six will be selected. So uh, uh, tickets to the permaculture design course, six tickets to the uh, this year's appropriate technology course. And then uh, we've got six tickets for a couple to come here to Wheaton Labs and stay in one of our structures that has a rocket mass heater in it. So you probably want to do this in the wintertime to really test out the rocket mass heater. But uh, people can stay in Allerton Abbey or the teepee with a rocket mass heater. Uh, the Red Cabin, uh, which is a very popular one. A lot of people like the beauty of the uh, what we call the, the cyclone heater. Uh, and the Love Shack. Um, and then, of course, everybody gets all of the things that are at the thanks and candy level. Four gift codes for the Permaculture Playing Cards ebook. Four gift codes for the Karen Feeding of a Rocket Mass Heater Microdoc. Four gift codes for uh, the Rocket Ovens Cooking Microdoc. Uh, four gift codes for the Hugelkultur Microdoc. Uh, 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 the 21 Podcast Review of Sepp Holzer's Permaculture. Uh, the Permaculture Experience ebook, also known as the PEP ebook. Uh, so that's that's brand new and it's still a little rough, but um, uh, it's it's rather profound. Um, Bill, and then uh, the full DVD of Build a Cobb style rocket mass heater as streaming, but four gift codes for that. So people will be able to give away copies of that DVD. Um, and then building the giant solar food dehydrator, uh, that is now available in streaming, and we're going to give away four gift codes for that. And the five-hour video tour of Wheaton Labs, four gift codes for that. Whew. Okay, everybody, be sure to use Jack's link because we're giving him a kickback because I enjoy doing this sort of clean, crisp business. Thanks, Jack.
All I can say is uh, it won't be until the fall that we have the final copies of the book. Uh, and that's Kickstarter. That's how it works. And I can't wait. I'm going to be giving these away to all of the people that I consider on the fence. That I consider on the fence. I have a lot of people in my family and in my kind of my circle of, of influence, you know, outside of the show. They really like what we do, but they, and they always ask, but they don't act. And I think giving them this and letting them page through it and say, this is one thing. I can do this thing. Well, like I said, that's what this journey is all about, the first step. The first step will compel the second. There, I, I don't know anybody that's gone into this world that's only taken one step. I know people that have kind of washed out, but I don't know anybody that ever took It's like a potato chip. You may not eat the entire bag, but if you eat a chip... You are going to eat chips. And if we can get people to sample these chips, I think that when it comes to permaculture, they are the best chips in the world. And we need to get people sampling them. So let's get on with it. Let's help Paul with this. Um, I'm, I, you know, I like Paul. He's a good friend. We've worked together on a lot of things. I don't push every Kickstarter the guy has. Uh, I don't even think I mentioned the last one other than I shared it on Facebook. This one I've been pushing. If you're on my Daily Mail, you know it's been in the Daily Mail every day since it launched. The reason I'm pushing this one is because I believe in it. I believe it will transform minds and therefore transform our whole world. Just a little bit. But that's enough for anyone. If you can transform the world just a little bit, you've made the most of your dash. Kudos to Paul for putting this one together. Next up, let's hear from the old man himself. Doc Bones, I asked him to get out of his convalescent bed and uh, see if he can dust himself off long enough to talk to us about the deadly kissing bug. Because I'm seeing about four or five articles a day that say something like, The deadly kissing bug could be deadlier than previously thought, experts say. Now let me tell you something. Whenever you see a headline formatted that way, you should in the back of your mind think, Bullshit! And you may or may not, when you read the article, see them basically you know, spill the actual beans and not be completely full of shit. But when the headline's that way, the headline is a big steaming bowl of Supa de Mierda de Toro, right? Supa de Mierda de Toro, you know what that is? Bullshit soup. So I said, old man, if you can wipe the dribble off of your face long enough, can you tell us about this kissing bug thing? Because I lived in Panama for two years. I lived in Honduras for six months. And there was all kinds of stuff to worry about. And I'd never even heard of this damn thing. And it is an issue. And you'll hear that it can be a problem. But I wanted to nip this one in the, bed, the bud before it became... Hysteria yet again, like i.e. swine flu, i.e. Ebola, etc. So, old man, what's up? Tell us all about it. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. The brand new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. You're going to want that. And the designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. 
This is a special report on kissing bugs. No, not kissing bugs, as in how to kiss bugs. I mean kissing bugs, the latest invader from south of the border that is now found as far north as Pennsylvania and Illinois. The insect in question is Triatoma sanguisuga, and it's called the kissing bug because it tends to bite human and animal victims around the mouth, although sometimes it might target the eyes or other mucous membranes. It's bad enough to have to deal with the redness, itching, and swelling that goes along with the bite, but there's more. When the kissing bug sucks your blood, it defecates, that is, it poops. Irritated victims tend to rub the poop into the bite wound while scratching the itchy area. Sometimes they're asleep while they're doing this. In kids, a swollen eyelid on one side, also called Romagna's sign, is a possible sign of infection. Even worse, in the poop lives a parasite called Trypanosoma cruzi that lodges itself in heart, intestine, and elsewhere and causes something called Chagas disease. Most people only experience minor symptoms, so do not panic. But a minority of patients may actually develop some serious side effects. Diarrhea and vomiting, enlargement of the liver or spleen, an increased chance of having a stroke, an enlarged heart, and irregular heartbeats that can be fatal. The good news is Chagas disease is not transmitted from person to person or through any casual contact with infected people or animals. It can be spread by infected blood products, however, or from mother to baby during a pregnancy. And rarely, an extreme allergic reaction known as anaphylaxis can occur. You can avoid Chagas disease by being able to eliminate the bug that carries it. Adult kissing bugs range from about three quarters to one and a quarter inches in length. Most, but not all, species have a characteristic band around the edge of the body that is striped and orange or red, or at least having orange or red markings. Their mouth parts appear as large black extensions to the head. The CDC recommends locating outdoor lights away from dwellings such as homes, dog kennels, and chicken coops, and turning off lights that are not in use. Homeowners should also remove trash, wood, and rock piles from around the home and clear out any bird or animal nests near the house. Cracks and gaps around windows, air conditioners, walls, roofs, doors, and crawl spaces into the house should be inspected and sealed. Chimney flues should be tightly closed when not in use, and screens should be used on all doors and windows. And if you can, let your pets sleep indoors, especially at night. Bottom line, the kissing bug exists, and so does Chagas disease, but most people don't know they even have it. Few cases have been documented to originate in the United States, although 300,000 people are thought to have brought the disease in from Latin America. The bug is here, however, and you should know about it and how to treat it. Antiparasitic treatment is most effective early in the course of infection. In the United States, the treatment with the least side effects is benznidazole. That's B-E-N-Z-N-I-D-A-Z-O-L-E. It is approved by the FDA for use in children 2 to 12 years of age and is commercially available. You may get better on your own after a few weeks, but without the treatment, the infection does stay in your body, so you might consider it A personal experience with a kissing bug is unlikely to be in your future, but if you suspect you have Chagas disease, make sure you contact your health care provider immediately. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our Survival Medicine Handbook and Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net.
You'll be glad you did. So here's my anti-bullshit vaccine for, uh, for this. Uh, first of all, it ain't likely. It ain't likely. Second of all, if it does happen, and you know it happened, it's treatable with a couple drugs with a 100% success rate. So it's all a bunch of bullshit soup. It is something to be aware of, and I have actually sent off an email to Dr. Kelly, who we'll hear from later on a different subject, about this for our pets and our livestock. I'm actually a little bit more concerned there. And the reason is your dog can't come in and say, hey, some weird-looking critter bit me. You know, you may or may not even know that your dog has been, or your cat or something else has been bit by this thing. Um, so it, it, it was something that I thought if there's actually going to be a, a, an issue here, it, it may very well be something we need to be aware of for our animals. Uh, in the end, though, I'm, I'm not worried about this. And the reason I'm not worried about this is that about 30,000-plus people this year will be you know, killed on our roadways in car accidents. And not a one has died from this deadly bug. Okay? So unless you're going to start wrapping yourself in spray foam whenever you get in your car, you probably don't need to get overly concerned about this. This is one of those things good to be aware of. Don't get too worked up about it. Uh, next up, um, yeah, this is random assemblage of nonsense. Uh, Nicole and Tactical and Dixie and I... I, I, I don't know how to explain this other than I can explain it after you hear it. If I try to explain it before you hear it, as little sense as it's going to make, it's going to make less sense. So here we go. Hello, TSP community. This is Nicole Sauce here to answer a question that came in for Jack on what does or how does bat guano really enhance the flavor of coffee beans? Wait a minute. Tactical. What? You're not supposed to hijack this podcast. It's not my podcast. This is Jack Spierko's podcast. I hijack people's podcasts. Come on. Okay, anyway, we didn't want to be on the Pikers list, and since there are four expert council members here, we thought we'd just go ahead and record a segment answering questions for the expert council and get it to you, Jack. So this is Sean Mills from Hack My Solar, and I have a question from Jake. Jake wants to know, how do I build a flux core capacitor using only a microwave? Well, Jake, here's the thing. There's no such thing as a microwave-based flux capacitor, but if you want to build one with some things that you have at home, you just need to get your Stephen Harris approved still at Stephen Harris approved still 1234.com, and you need to go out and find a fire poker It has to be made out of brass, though, and not aluminum, because aluminum melts at a, at a higher, at a uh, lower temperature, and it will just, like, when you turn that thing on and it, it heats up, it'll melt it, and then there's a big explosion, and you wouldn't want to send your pump house to the, to Mars on a rocket. So, what you do is you then take the poker and you stab it into the Stephen Harris approved still, If you don't have redneck juice, though, it won't last very long. So be sure to buy a very nice bottle of Johnny Walker Blue. Pour it in there before you stab it. Put the lid on, plug it in, and you're good to go. Hey, TSP, this is Patrick Rohrman with MT Knives with a question that is also from Jake. What's the best way to sharpen a Swiss Army knife at home? 
Well, folks, just to make this super easy, you can do this with materials that are already at your house. So all you have to do, if you have a lot of kids, you can send one of them outside to the yard to dig up the smoothest stone that you can find. And then all you have to do is take the edge of the knife and just rub it back and forth very quickly on the smoothest stone And that's it. It's just as simple as that. You could add a little water on the stone if you wanted to, just to make sure you get a better edge. But that's really all there is to it. Hey, y'all. This is Dixie here. And I got a question to you today from for the expert council. And uh, I just got off of a long hike, and I get this question from a from a Jake Robinson. Jake, why are you sending so many questions in? Anyways, Jake's question is, how do you, oh, oh, I can't use that. How do you, what do you do if you poop your pants while you're backpacking? Well, you see, hopefully if that happens, you've been hiking for a while and you've just been turning butter. And, and if you've been turning enough butter when you crap your pants, it just slides right out. And, you know, I just keep on hiking. You know, hiking, it can, any, you can hike any way you want, but, I just encourage you to hike your own hike. Anyways, thanks for the question, Jake. Um, I hope you guys are all having a great weekend, and bye. Greetings from the Holler Homestead. Make it a great weekend. Okay, so where where does such lunacy originate? It originates right here at Nine Mile Farm. Um and the uh, TSP workshops. So we started having everybody kind of introduce themselves, uh, not just in the beginning, like where everybody says, you know, I'm, I'm Bob and I'm from Tyler and I'm here to learn. We, we, we started doing with our workshops. We have like, we put aside like an hour in the evening, of the first evening, where people come up and they tell you who they are. They tell you if they have any ideas, what they're looking to do in their lives. Because, you know, we'll find out that some guy's looking to start up an aquaponics farm. And he ends up living like 30 miles from a guy that actually knows a shitload about aquaponics. Things like that happen all the time here. So with people like my buddy David, who really is the one that started all this lunacy, what some of us started doing, since you guys know who we are, like if I get up, my name's Jack Spirico, and I'm the host of the, like, shut up, Jack, we know who you are. So what we started doing was pretending to be another member of the council or another instructor or somebody like that. For instance, uh, David, in one of the workshops, pretended to be Nicole. He put her hat on, and he told this story about how they were poor when they were little kids and their first business was in glitter and that she would sit around cutting the glitter with fingernail clippers uh, and eventually got into selling caffeinated goat juice uh, along with, I believe, something about grilled or shish kebab guinea pigs was involved with that one. And uh, Nick Ferguson did a pretty good version of me. All of a sudden he comes walking out and he's in a, uh, a camo field jacket from my old army camo field jacket. He's got a pair of my glasses on. Uh, a little padding so he could weigh a little more because Nick weighs about 113 pounds soaking wet and, uh, and did a pretty good one of me. I did this guy, Thad, that's pretty well known at the workshops. He's an Army drill sergeant. So that's where this came from. I, I think with that context, maybe it makes a little more sense. The reason I tell you all this is there's stuff that goes on at these workshops that you just will not know about if you don't come to one. 
There won't be, you know, even if you get a little clip of a video of that, you're not going to understand it. Uh, there is a, a camaraderie and a brotherhood that goes on here. Um, it is most likely going to be in uh, November. In fact, I almost give you a 100% guarantee it will be November uh, that we will be doing our fall workshop, and it will most likely be the weekend of the seven, like the uh, Wednesday the 6th through Sunday the 10th, if you want to start looking ahead toward that. I know it's way out there. Uh, it is possible that it could end up being the 13th through the 17th, but I just looking at everything, I think 6th through 10th, is going to make the most sense. We like to do that workshop just as we're heading into the holiday season. And, you know, I say it's way out there, but, man, the dog days of summer are on the way, and it will be fall before you know it. So remember, what we always teach here at TSP, winter always comes, so always be prepping, be good ants. Uh, hopefully that brightens your Friday. Uh, next up, on a more serious note, I have a question for Dr. Kelly, our veterinary member of the Expert Council, on dealing with doggies that have allergies. Right, Charlie, as I pet my big old beast Charlie right next to me. Hi, Jack and all TSP listeners. This is Dr. Kelly, here to answer all your furry pet questions. Today's question is from Randy, and he asks, What can we do about our dog's constant chewing of her feet and scratching your ears? We have a nine-year-old Beagle Basset mix, and she has always had problems with her ears and feet. Her ears are often hot and usually smell like Doritos. Our vet has suggested the problem is yeast and has given us a variety of things to try, including drops. We have her on a grain-free diet. We have tried commercial products like Dynavite. We have tried a pure meat diet, but she wasn't interested. Any ideas? Thanks, Randy. Okay, Randy, here's the deal. Ear problems comboed with feet definitely puts allergies on the top of the differential list here. With these issues, the top two are food allergies and atopy, which is inhaled allergens. Atopy being the more common of the two. I'll say a quick word on food allergies and foods, um, but I do have more coming up on that in a future council segment that I hope to get recorded within the next week or two. So the big things to remember with food allergies are that to diagnose it, the pet has to be on a specific food that is either meticulously homemade with limited ingredients you discuss with your vet or a prescription food that is either limited ingredient or hydrolyzed. And they need to eat only that food for at least eight weeks with nothing else passing their lips. And if the itchiness and problems go away, then it was likely food related. And then with your vet, you can start to talk about potentially adding things back in and doing things a little differently. But if it, they're still itchy after that eight weeks, they are either, they're allergic to the food that you were trying in the trial and you have to do something else, or it's possible that they have other allergies such as atopy. Now, um, a quick word on that with the grain-free diet. I would be a little cautious about feeding her that because they're finding now that some of those are related and they don't know in what way yet. There's still research to be done. But there is suspicion that some of those may have a higher incidence of um, heart disease and heart failure. So that's one that I am telling people to steer away from at this point. But, but I'll get into that a little more, like I said, in the future. So atopy or inhaled allergies um, is very common, and it has a genetic component. And the complicated thing about it, though, is that both for animals and people, it's that epigenetics are involved. So certain environmental factors can turn on certain genes, making allergies more or less prevalent. And it's not straightforward, like eye color or blood type in the nice little Mendelian genetic square, um, which is both cool and kind of a pain. So unlike 
it just makes it harder to decide who's going to have it, what are they allergic to, what's going to happen. And unlike people who can grow outgrow allergies and they tend to get better as they age, our pets' allergies tend to get worse over time. As they're aging, we tend to see things definitely um, get worse for them. So what happens if your dog has allergies? Where do you start? And maintenance of the affected areas is a good place to start for these guys. You mentioned the ears were involved, so having a good routine for cleaning ears can be helpful both to prevent infection and to catch infections early. And I know there's another um, podcast that mentions a lot of stuff on ears specifically, but there's certain cleaners like the pH Nodix that can help break down and dissolve the earwax and debris. The cool thing about that one is that the instructions even have on there that you just are to use it once weekly, not any more than that. So it's not super time intensive. And then other products like Zymox, they have an ear solution that's separate from cleaning that for dogs with just allergies and without infection may be helpful as it has a combination of steroids and enzymes to help that ear. Skin maintenance is a big one too, since it's the largest organ. And they've now found that a lot of the allergy dogs and people have with allergies have altered dermal barriers. Basically, the skin isn't normal, so it makes it more likely to have problems and infections. And I think frequent shampoos on these allergy guys really help the skin, and it just helps wash off the pollen and other things they may be allergic to. So Duoxo has some good and that's D-U-O-X-O, has some good over-the-counter products. Uh, any of the medicated shampoos have to be left on for 10 minutes before you rinse to provide full effect. And depending on your dog, that may be a long 10 minutes. So I tell clients, you know, get through three songs on the radio and you can wash it off. And the Duoxo products often include phytosphingosine, which helps repair the skin's barrier when that just helps long-term for issues and just tries to help keep it so that further infections don't happen. And I find it really helps the dogs with feet issues to wipe their feet off after being outside. And I've had several patients have luck with that Duoxo mousse um, because they can put in between the paw pads and get it really scrub it in there. And it's also nice for dogs that say baths are a no-go for whatever reason. Um, so if you're doing a good job of taking care of maintenance, but you're still having some issues, the next steps include some different medications. Now, over-the-counter antihistamines like Benadryl and Zyrtec can be given to pets. Talk to your vet about the doses, but they often require much higher doses than humans do. So just due to how they metabolize it. So don't be shocked when they say a really high dose for them. Often people find the non-drowsy ones may not work as well for dogs as the others like Benadryl, but it all depends on the dog. So you can try different types. Now, prescription meds are sometimes and you know, frequently required, though. Now, options your vet may mention. Steroids is often one of the first ones. They're cheap and they're effective, but I consider steroids a little bit like the mafia. They will come in and help you out. Maybe there's a little small trade-off, some small favors, like the dog's appetite's increased and it's more thirsty, it's thirstier. Maybe it pees a bit more because of that, but, but that's about all. But if you're using it too frequently and you're calling in too many favors from it, it starts calling back with its own big favors, with things like diabetes and Cushing's disease and impaired immune system function. So ideally, you don't want to be pulling those off the shelf too often. Now, that being said, I've had patients who failed all of their meds and they just ended up on low-dose steroids for their whole life so they, they could have a life at all because without it, they were unbearably miserable. So sometimes that's just what you got to do.
Now, another older option is cyclosporin, which helps suppress the immune system's response to the allergens, similar to steroids. Now, I'll admit, I don't see this one as frequently anymore, but it did help some patients, so it's not to be totally ruled out. And it's really been taken over by some of these newer meds that I'll talk about soon. Option two, and one of the best ones, is allergy-specific immunotherapy, or what we consider allergy injections, just like people get. Now, the advantage is that dogs, it works that it works for, it can be like a miracle and really help them out. The downside is it's more expensive. It takes a long time. Like you've got to commit to at least a year before you'll even really know, is this working? And unfortunately, it doesn't work for everybody. So patients are diagnosed with skin testing, just like you would do in people, and serums are based on the individual's needs. Skin testing is much superior to the blood test for allergies, and depending on how many things your dog is allergic to, they can sometimes also do oral preparations instead of injections. Now, option three is a relatively new option. It's about not even like five or six years old, and it's Apoquel, which is what's known as a JAK1 inhibitor. So it's blocking Janus kinase in the itch cascade that's going on the pet's body. When the JAK1 is inhibited, the body isn't completing that slippery slope into the itchiness because the signal got blocked. It's kind of like a drop cell call. And it works fast and without a lot of the side effects you'd see with steroids. However, it doesn't work for every dog, and it's not without side effects of its own, so some dogs don't tolerate it. Option four is an injectable that's called Cytopoint, and it's a monoclonal anti-interleukin-31 antibody. And it's another one that's stopping that cascade, since interleukin-31 is made by the skin cells to tell the nerves to make the dog itchy. And this injection blocks that message, kind of like a spam filter. Now, the overall message with allergies is, unfortunately, that they tend to be a lifelong expensive hassle. And that's just how it is. Um, unfortunately, However, I do find that the more groundwork owners put in with the maintenance and keeping up with shampoos and ear cleaning and all that, the better the pets do and the less frequently that I end up having to see them. And with some of the newer meds, we can get these guys pretty comfortable and help prevent secondary infections, which just make matters worse. Now, allergies are one of the reasons that if you're considering pet insurance, I recommend getting it early when they're a puppy before the allergies get diagnosed. So it's not a pre-existing condition. Some of these guys get diagnosed even within that first year of life and then then it wouldn't, um, they, it wouldn't matter whether they had insurance or not. So um, also to remember that a lot of these guys end up on combination therapy where we're trying multiple things in addition to that maintenance stuff. So thanks for your question, Randy. And I hope your dog is one of those that's less affected by all the allergies um, and that with if needed, you can get on some meds that will help it up further. And remember all, I'm a veterinarian, but I'm not your veterinarian. So my comments are only intended to give you a ballpark estimate of the recommendations that your own vet may make for your pet. Thanks, Jack, and have a great weekend, everybody. I'll just throw out, again, my favorite thing to use for dogs when they have any kind of, like, hot spots, itchy spots, etc. You know, maybe not so much for a systemic level thing like we're talking about here, Zymox, uh, Z-Y-M-O-X. You can find it on my website, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Just go to tspaz.com where I recommend all my products look under pets. And uh, I'll tell you, it's not just been great for my dog. I got, you know, I got my big beast. He's hanging out with me. Uh, I guess he doesn't know that we already had bacon for the day and there won't be any more bacon, but he gets some really kind of red, nasty spots like in his groin area and like his legs and stomach, uh, probably because he has no hair being a pit breed uh, in the summer. And uh, man, I'm telling you, that stuff just takes it away. And it's, it's, it's been great for me with scrapes and cuts and stuff. 
It is a hydrocortisone, which in itself is powerful, but it has a, a multi-blend of enzymes. And these enzymes are antimicrobial, antibacterial, and antifungal. And I'm just saying it works. I, I know that whenever anybody gets that hot on something that is like a, uh, a, a medication that it can sound like snake oil, it doesn't cure cancer or nothing, guys. But when it comes to things like hot spots and all, it really works. Uh, I've had Charlie one year, he had his two back claws where he had chewed them red. Uh, hair off them, big red spots on them, about the size of a quarter. And I think what happened is he got in some fire ants and it just drove him crazy, so he's chewing on them. And this stuff fixed it in a couple days. So just want to throw that on top of it. Uh, next up, we got a question for Darby Simpson of A Grassfed Life on pastured turkeys and shelters uh, for them. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of Grass-Fed Life calling in once again to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I've got a question from Jacob all the way up in Michigan wanting to know uh, what my thoughts are on raising pastured turkeys. He's going to be starting with 25 broad-breasted whites this year, and currently he's planning on using an IBC tote on a trailer for water and a 1,000-pound bulk feeder on skids, but he hasn't yet decided on a shelter or a roost for the turkey shed. Uh, he's planning on using a pop-up camper uh, trailer chassis with a wood frame uh, with cattle panels arched over for a roof frame, and he's going to be putting an A-frame roost inside. So he's looking for some advice on building a good shelter for the birds. Uh, again, he's in central Michigan dealing with strong winds, so he's not completely sure if this idea will work well wants to know what advice I would give to someone starting off with pastured turkeys in a well-designed shelter. Um, Jacob, the first thing I'm going to mention, um, while I'm all for your raising turkeys, I hope you've got some experience with pasture broilers first. Uh, pasture turkeys, not impossible to raise, but brooder management is like the key to having healthy birds. I don't care if you're talking about chickens, ducks, turkeys, whatever. And it's a bit of an art form. I'll be honest with you. Um, you know, we, we've got a, uh, we've got a full length farming course. It's like 30 hours. Okay. Where we cover so much stuff. There are 23 different modules from business to marketing, spreadsheets, you name it. The reason I mention that is that there's almost one hour dedicated by myself, just to managing the brooder in that course. Actually, there's a little more than an hour. It's a huge chunk, and it's because it's so important. Now, I don't want to dissuade you from raising turkeys if you've never raised broilers. Just know that the brooder management takes a lot of extra effort, and turkeys, they're just more difficult in the brooder than chickens are. Um, so I say all that to say that you want to make sure you've got the right feed, about 28% protein. You start them off specifically with the small chick grit and work them up to the larger grit. Once they go out on pasture, they're going to be in the brooder for probably at least four or five weeks. And just know that if you get 80%, 75% of those birds from the brooder to pasture, we're going to call that a win. They're just a little bit more difficult. So don't want to go on a huge tangent here. 
but I just want people to understand how important brooder management is and why it's worthwhile to spend some time and possibly even some money to learn how to do it right. So back to your shelter. The chicken tractor that I use works really well. We get strong winds here just like you do. I mean, I'm just, you know, probably four or five hours south of you in central Indiana. 70-mile-an-hour winds are not unheard of. And our big shelters made out of cattle panels don't move. They're heavy. They're about 400 pounds. So I think basically kind of taking that concept and putting it onto a trailer, you're probably fine. Uh, I don't know how far away your birds are going to be from your house or if you've got buried water. Um, an IBC tote is fine on a trailer. Garden hose is pretty cheap. Just saying. And then you've got pressurized water out there where you need it because a lot of times you need pressurized water to blow out a drinker, a hose line, clean stuff off. Just keep that in mind. Um, but a, an IBC tote would be fine. Uh, your bulk feeder is fine, although we just we have a bulk feeder up by the house. We just fill up five-gallon buckets and take those back there to, to feed the birds as we need to. Um, so those are my thoughts on that. But overall, I feel like your question is about this this trailer. They really don't have, I'll be honest with you, they don't really have to have a roost. I mean, they might use it, but these broad-breasted whites, they do just fine on the ground. They're difficult in the brooder, but once you get these things about six or seven weeks old, you can't hardly kill them with a nine iron. Uh, I mean, they're tough. They can hack cold. They can hack rain. uh, They can hack snow, ice, you name it. We've raised them in it, and they do pretty daggone well. Uh, just make sure that you slow down the protein on pasture to about 21%. You don't want to start having heart attacks or, or leg issues. Um, but uh, once you get them out there, man, they do just fine on the grass, and they graze like crazy. Now, with this trailer shelter A-frame setup, I'm kind of thinking maybe you're going to let them out, which I think is fine, a la Luke Gross in southern Indiana. Um, you know, we've got some, some stuff at Grassfed Life from Luke, uh, where he's talking about his system and letting the birds actually out and in netting. Uh, you could totally do that and then just treat, train them to go up at night. You can give them feed at night, uh, to train them hopefully to go back into the shelter. Um, but overall, I think it'll work. The biggest thing with the winds, you want to make sure it's heavy. And then something I do with my chicken tractors. Uh, and you, you can find information about my chicken tractor at grassfedlife.co. Um, we've got a way to anchor those to the ground using a piece of all thread, an oversized washer, and a nut, and, a, and an eye bolt. Uh, so that if we do have strong winds, we can anchor that thing really easily. It takes a couple of minutes with a three-pound hammer. That's it. So with your trailer... Uh, you're going to want to have some way to anchor this thing to the ground. Now, how do you do that? I don't know. Maybe you weld something on there so you can put a big ground anchor through it, stake it to the ground, use tie-downs, whatever you want to do. But strong winds and using cattle panels and putting a tarp over that, like I have had these things move. It's only happened like one time, but they did move about 60 to 80 feet. Uh, and there have been times where had I not have wouldn't have staked them, they might have moved a whole bunch as well. So have a way to secure it to the ground and um, just make sure that they got you know the shelter they need, clean fresh water. Still still a fan of pressurized water. <laughs> if you got to haul it, you got to haul it. But 
if it's you know two, three, four, five hundred feet, dude, just go buy some hose. Seriously, go to Rural King, buy some hose. It'll cost you like I don't know, not that much, hundred bucks. You're good. Um, have pressurized water if you can. Make sure your feed uh, protein rations are correct. Turkeys are super specific, especially as broad-breasted whites. That's what I've always raised. Uh, we've always used Mount Healthy Hatchery out of Cincinnati for the broad-breasted whites. They've been super consistent for us. I've never uh, used the turkeys from Schlecht Hatchery. Now, we use their broilers, and I love them. I love Etta and her whole crew. Uh, I've never used their turkeys. I uh, had another guy that's in the Farm Business Essentials course here in Indiana, um, kind of up towards like Kokomo used their turkeys last year great success so I'd tell you check out one of those two hatcheries uh, they should get them to you pretty quick and that's always important so that's what I got for you Jacob thanks for sending this question in listen if you guys want to learn more about me check out grassfedlife.co if you're wondering about some of these resources that I mentioned we've got a whole bunch of them in our grassfed life insider which is a monthly subscription you can drop it at any time. You can sign up for it. If you don't dig it, you can unsubscribe. First month is not charged. Over 30 hours of content in there, actually getting close to pushing 40 hours of content in there, including a mini farming course with me that's like six hours long on everything poultry, pork, and beef related. So check it out. Check out the free podcast. Check out the other free resources we have. As always, guys, Thank you for sending these questions in. Keep them coming. I love answering them. Love helping everybody out in the Regen Ag movement. I live it. I believe in it. Thanks for sending these in. As always, everyone take care and have a wonderful weekend. Okay, time for Stephen Harris with uh, a Harris rant, sort of. Um, This is important stuff, though, guys. And I'm glad we have Steve looking out for us with this information. Steve, take it away. This is damn important, almost at a level of an emergency. So if you don't listen to Steve Harris because you don't like me, shut up and listen to this one. Hi, this is Steve Harris for the Expert Council with some very important information for you regarding batteries. I have important information and I have emergency information. First, the important information. Basically, Amazon has banned all sales of lithium-ion cylindrical batteries on Amazon. 14500s, 18650s, 16340s, which are CR123 size batteries, etc., the 26650s, they have all been banned from individual sale on Amazon. You will find some things coming with battery these batteries, but even those are going away. But things that already contain these cells, like USB battery packs, and they're all sealed up, those are fine. We don't know when Amazon is going to allow these on again. These might have been responsible for the fire or for the downing of their cargo aircraft that happened last month or previously. It is a significant thing because this was the source for 18650s and 14500s for us, for our batteries, our flashlights, etc. Now, we don't really have a reliable place that has feedback to tell us about the batteries we want to buy because the feedback is a very important way of deciding what we want to buy. There are some 18650s on Amazon, but they're all up there and gone, up there and gone, and all they're all fake cells. The largest 18650 is 3400 with Nightcore actually having one at 3500, but you go on Amazon and it says 
900 milliamp hours. Lie, 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 fake, 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 fake. So ignore those. What can you buy and where can you buy it? The short story. You, we can still go to eBay. Someone sent me to the 18650 battery store, and I went through everything, which took a half hour, and actually only found one of their batteries that I would trust in purchasing. So the best place right now for you to get the, uh, the batteries that you want, either the RCR123s, the 18650s, or the 14500s, is going to be eBay. And there are only three brands I want you to buy right now and trust, and only these. On eBay, you can buy Nightcore, N-I-T-E-C-O-R-E, Nightcore batteries, and Phoenix or Phoenix, depending on how you pronounce it, F-E-N-I-X. You can trust them. The other company you can trust when it's bought on eBay is Olight, O-L-I-G-H-T. These are very popular in law enforcement. They are good batteries. Yeah, you're going to pay a few bucks more for them, but hey, one thing worse than uh, no battery is a bad battery because it's going to fail when you think it's good. Now, speaking of failing batteries, I have something that's kind of shocking. Most of you know I do different levels of consulting to the U.S. government and other entities and corporations. And one of my buddies called me and said, hey, Steve, we got an issue. Uh, we're discovering there are fake Energizer lithiums. These are disposable Energizer lithium batteries, double A's and triple A's. And they are basically the most reliable battery on the planet that you would trust your life to if you're going to buy a battery and throw it away. It is the go-to battery for many things, and it's the number one backup battery for many things, which is a longer story. That kind of got me to get a pry bar out and start opening the door a little bit and looking in further. And with my friend and I, we mutually discovered that there were a significant issue with fake Surefire, fake Streamlight batteries, and fake other name brand high-end batteries. There are issues with buying like 100 Duracells on uh, Amazon. There always has been with them being dated. But it's really not the Duracells that are being faked. It is the expensive Energizer AA, AAA lithium batteries that are being faked, faked, faked. They look exactly like the real thing. Surefire and Streamlight makes quality CR123 disposable batteries for law enforcement, the military, and we have discovered these to be fake. We have even found name brand 18500s that were actually cells taken from a laptop, had a button put on them, and rewrapped. And when they were taken apart, you could see the cut-off welded nickel tab on them, as in they came off of a dead laptop uh, battery. And it had very minimal chargeability in it. So even some name brand 18650s were faked. Uh, the container they come in and everything, faked. The wrapping on the battery, faked and perfect. We have found Streamlight headlamps that look identical to Streamlight headlamps. The box, the instructions, the outside of the lamp. However, when you take the lamp apart, you discover that it's fake. If you're getting a Streamlight uh, headlamp for 25 bucks online, guess what? 
fake. They're normally 125 bucks. So the fakers are going after the high-end stuff. One government entity had over 50,000 batteries of various types in their inventory, and they had so many of them to check that they had to use a portable x-ray machine to start x-raying them. Out of the 50,000, they have discovered about 10% of them were fake. They were bad. They had them opened up. They took them, uh, took stuff out of them and sent them to an external lab for analysis, most likely a mass spectrometer. Came back containing flour. Yeah, regular white flour. Why? I don't know. Apparently, we cannot tell the difference uh, between these by weight. Uh, I do have a method of telling the difference between them with current, not voltage, and I will, it's beyond this conversation. I'm going to have to do it and do a video and get back with you and tell you about how to check your current 18650s, 14500s, especially your CR123s and your Energizer Lithium AA batteries that they are real and they are not fake and how to know it as a civilian when you get them in your hands because they will test voltage normally. They'll test normal on a tester. They'll go out in the field. They'll work good for a little while, and then they will just absolutely positively die. This is different than the fakery on some 18650s, which we've told you about before. A good 18650 has to weigh 42 grams or more to be good. If not, it is fake. And, God, this is an extensive subject, but I had to put this warning out to you. There will be more information coming from me to you about this and how to test it and find out. For the meantime, stick to those three name brands I told you for lithium-ion rechargeables on eBay, Nightcore, Phoenix, and Olight. When you buy your Energizer AA's, please make sure you are buying them directly from Walmart or directly, you know, in a package off of Amazon, everything else, not loose, not a hundred of them. You know, the standard Energizer packaging. Best to get them locally. Surefire batteries are in Streamlights. If you have to buy them, the only place you're going to be able to trust is if you can buy them directly from the corporate website itself, from the factory, and from the company. This is Steve Harris bringing you an important update. For more great video and other things from me, uh, please check out all of my paid premium content on my membership website of harris1234.com. That's H-A-R-R-I-S-1234.com. And all of my free stuff that is free and always will be free that you can get that I've done with Jack and my own other stuff is at stephen1234.com. Please go and enjoy both sites, guys. I will be coming back to you with more information on this subject soon. I promise. Bye. So on the whole counterfeit thing, um, this is something that I need to talk about, too, with one of my product recommendations. And you heard uh, one of the brands that Steve mentioned was Streamlight. He was talking about the batteries. Streamlight does have batteries as well as lights. Uh, of course, I am a big fan of the uh, stream uh, Streamlight uh uh, the Streamlight uh, Stylus Pro, something I've recommended for a long time to deal with the 
uh, stupid girl jean non pockets, the Streamlight Micro Streamlight, and another light that I've become, and a group of lights, I guess I should say, I've become a pretty big uh, fan of, are the Nebo lights, N-E-B-O. Uh, I bet this exists in other name brand higher end flashlights, but I have found counterfeit versions of the Nebo lights. I have found counterfeit versions of the Streamlight lights. So much so that if I am buying from, uh, if I'm buying those products on Amazon, I will only buy directly from the manufacturer. If you go on Amazon, you can always see who the seller is and click their name and you can see all the stuff that they sell. Um, I don't care if it's a couple bucks less. If I'm buying a new Streamlight, if I'm buying a new Nebo, if I'm buying a new Maglite, I'm buying from the company itself on Amazon. It is the only way I'm going to do that uh, because I don't know how I would otherwise know that I'm uh, ending up with counterfeit product. But I started finding some negative reviews on some of the products I recommended that didn't sound right to me. They just they, they, they didn't add up. Uh, shoddy build quality and stuff like that. And I did more research into it. And what happens is a person goes and they buy this product from whomever, right? You know, they, they go there and they look up, you know, flashlights and then they find the Nebo Big Larry or something like that. And then they start comparison shopping. Well, what's the best deal? Which you can understand. I do that too to a degree. And then they buy the cheapest one. They're inevitably buying from some chop shop in China that says, Oh, we can put Nebo on a light, right? And so they get this product, and it's close, but it's not the same. And I've even looked at some of the reviews, the net, like the one-star reviews, of, because when I see one-star reviews of a product I recommend, and it's not some idiot bitching because the postman screwed up, right? It's a legitimate, like, here's this thing or whatever, and I'm looking at the light, and I'm looking at my light in my hand and the picture they have, and it's not that it's, something's broken, it's, it's not the same. And a lot of these clones aren't really clones, they're copies. And copies and clones are different things. So just be aware of that. And when you're buying a lot of stuff, I think it makes sense. If the deal looks too good, make sure you're not you know, buying from some third party, what have you, and you're actually getting you know, not what you're paying for. Because, again, I, I can tell you flat out that it indeed... Does happen. Next up, I got a financial question. This one for John Pugliano. Who else would it be? And it is on market timing. John, take it away. Hey, TSP. Today, our financial question comes from Daniel. And I'm going to apologize right up front to Daniel. I'm not going to answer your question in the direct way that you probably intended me to. But what I'd like to do is use your question as a teaching example for the TSP audience so that I can point out some really common mistakes that people make. So, Daniel, if it seems like I'm picking on you, I'm not. Think of this as tough love for you or anybody else in the audience that's making some poor investment decisions. Let's get into the details of Daniel's question. He says that for well over the last 10 years, he's been investing in a fund that's called the Alliance Bernstein Growth A Mutual Fund. He's got about $10,000 into it. Now, the fund has done very well over the last 10 years, and he's also probably withdrawn you know, $10,000 or so out of that fund for various reasons when he's needed money. He says that he realizes that the last 10 years the market's done very well, but that this fund does seem to perform well even in down years. And so he's curious if there's a pending recession or some kind of big pullback in the market coming, you know, whether it be tomorrow or in the next five years, should he just stay with this fund or should he get out of it and go into something else? And as far as justifying holding the position, he goes on to say 
that his investment is at the point where the majority of the fees have been paid and he's in a long-term capital gains tax position. So he'd hate to lose all that. Now, Daniel didn't give me the exact ticker symbol for the mutual fund that he's in, but I'm going to make the assumption that it's APGAX, which is the AB Large Cap Growth A Fund. Now, one of the reasons that Daniel said that he might think about holding this position is that, of course, it's done well over the last 10 years as the market has done well, but that the fund also seemed to perform well even in downturns. I wouldn't say that at all. I'm looking at a long-term chart, and for the most part, that fund seems to pretty much either mimic the performance of the S&P 500 or, in some cases, not perform as well as the S&P 500. Now, the reason I'm making a big point about this is that one of the points that Daniel makes is, is that the majority of the fees have been paid. And what he means by that is that the mutual fund that he's in is a loaded fund. And in this particular case, it means that when he bought into the fund, he paid something in the neighborhood of probably 4.25% as a sales commission to get into this fund. And so while he says that the majority of the funds have been paid, well, yes, this is a front-end loaded fund, so they were pretty much paid the minute you invested in the fund. And just for assumption's sake, let's say that you had invested $10,000 into that fund. Well, immediately, you would have lost $425 to pay a sales commission. And the reason this is a big deal is that you can easily avoid paying these type of fees by not investing in loaded mutual funds. There's plenty of mutual funds, or for that matter, exchange-traded funds, which charge absolutely no sales commission fee up front. And so if you invest in them and maybe there's a small transaction fee of $5 or $10 or $20, but the majority of your money is going to go right into your investment rather than paying a salesman's commission. And so by losing four and a quarter percent the minute you step into a fund, I don't think that's a very wise idea. Nor do I think that's a good reason for staying with a fund, particularly if you are in APGAX. Well, yeah, it has a great four-star rating over at Morningstar. But again, so what? There are plenty of no-load mutual funds that have the same rating. That fund basically is just mimicking the performance of the S&P 500 or an index of large U.S. corporations. So why pay more for it when you don't have to? All the large discount fund providers offer no-load exchange-traded funds or mutual funds. Whether it's Vanguard or Fidelity or Charles Schwab or E-Trade, if you do just a little bit of homework you can save yourself paying that hefty commission fee. And so when a salesman pitches you a fund that comes with either a front-end or a back-end load, take the ticker symbol of that fund and go over to Yahoo Finance or Google Finance or, or virtually any website out there that provides stock market information, plug that ticker symbol into the website and have it draw a chart comparison between that fund and something like SPY, which is a no-load exchange-traded fund that tracks the S&P 500, and in the case of the fund that you're in, again, you'll see that for the most part, the performance of those two funds are very similar. And so rather than paying the big commission on it, you can simply go out and buy SPY for virtually free. But Daniel, it gets even worse from there, because not only is your fund a loaded fund, where you probably paid four and a quarter percent to get into it, but it also has a pretty high annual management fee. Now, it does look like the fee's been coming down over recent years. Back in 2015, the annual expense ratio was over 1.2%. It looks like last year, it was down to roughly about 0.9%. So from a cost perspective, at least it's moving in the right direction, but that's still a much higher percent rate than you should be paying. 
For example, I mentioned the exchange-traded fund, SPY, which has a very similar performance as the fund that you're in, and the annual expense ratio on SPY is only 0.09%. The fund that you're in last year looked like it had a ratio of about 0.9. So that's a whole order of magnitude difference. You're paying 10 times as much every year for the privilege of owning that loaded fund as you would be paying if you simply went into SPY. And if you shop around, you'll find that probably some Vanguard funds and some others are even less expensive than that. And again, this is not hard to do. Yahoo Finance, Google Finance, Morningstar, virtually any financial website will give you a breakdown on the cost of annual fees and expense ratios. So it's readily available. And for a little bit of effort on your part, you can look that information up. Now, also getting back to the background information that you gave, you mentioned that another reason for maybe not selling it is that you're in a position where you have a long-term capital gain. Depending upon what tax bracket you're in, it probably means that you'd only pay 15% on the gains that you've incurred. And that's a good position to be in, but remember, to attain that long-term capital gains tax break, you only have to hold the stock or the fund for one year and one day. And so if you would attempt to time the market and get out of your positions before you think that there's a market downturn, whenever you do get back into the market, as long as you're holding for a year and one day, you gain that long-term favorable tax status in no time at all. The other thing to think about in terms of tax consequences is, would you rather pay 15% on the gains that you made, or would you rather lose 20% or more of the principal should the economy go into a recession and the market has a major pullback? I mean, just think about that. Let's assume that of your $10,000, $5,000 of it were a gain. Well, that means that your long-term tax bill would only be about $750. But if there's a recession that causes a market pullback and you get a 20 or more percent drop in the stock market, then your principal is going to be reduced by well over $2,000. So would you rather pay the government $750 or would you rather lose more than $2,000? I'm just trying to get you to think from a big picture perspective. Yes, it's important to preserve the tax advantage of being in a long-term capital gain situation. However, that's a status that's just easy to get back into by simply holding the position for a year once you get back into the market. So the fact that you've been in this position for over 10 years doesn't really impact that long-term capital gain because you can just renew it every year. Now, finally, the last point I'd like to make is that you mentioned that you have $10,000 and you've probably taken another $10,000 out over the past decade. And I don't know about your other financial situation. You could have $10 million in your 401k plan at work or something. So I don't know your particular situation. But if you're probably like most Americans, this $10,000 is making up a significant portion of your savings. And apparently it's in a taxable account because you're worried about your long-term capital gains tax. And so the point I want to make here is that $10,000 in your investing account is not a very substantial amount of money. And if you don't have retirement accounts, you should think about establishing them because something like a Roth IRA would be giving you a tax-free return on your gains, and in times of an emergency, it would still allow you access to the principal that you put into it. The other thing is that you mentioned that you've pulled at least $10,000 out of this account. Well, again, I don't know your overall savings nest egg and how much money you may have in other places, but you're going the wrong direction. Rather than taking money out of this fund, you should have been putting money into it. Now, I know life gets in the way, and it's not easy to save, but this is the tough love part of it because, you know, it's never convenient to save. It's like having children. If you wait until you can afford to have kids, well, you'll probably be too old to have them. 
And so it's never easy or convenient to save. It requires discipline. If you haven't learned to reduce your consumption and take a portion of what you earn and pay yourself with it so that you can invest that and so that money can grow and be there in your old age, what you're going to find out is, is that you're simply going to be living on Social Security. And so, again, I don't know how much you have saved up, but if all you have is this $10,000, well, that's not going to go very far to supplementing your Social Security check. And so what you'll find yourself is like most Americans, which is old and broke. Well, Daniel, I know I made a lot of assumptions here. Maybe they don't apply to you. If they don't, I'm sure there's somebody in the audience that needs to hear it. So thanks for being a good sport. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Good stuff as always from John Pugliano. Um, and he's spot on with everything there. I really don't have anything to add. So let me get into my question today. This is from Kevin in Arkansas. He said, should a single 21-year-old male have life insurance? My son will graduate with an engineering degree and begin work with a large Fortune 500 aerospace company next month. He's been asking for advice and setting up various personal financial items for himself. Life insurance came up. Does a 21-year-old single male need life insurance? I've always heard that term is the best way to go, and the earlier you start, the lower the rates are throughout the term. However, right now he has no responsibilities outside himself. I do believe he plans to get married and have children at some point, or it would seem obvious that he'd need it. So where is the decision point on pulling the trigger on life insurance? How much coverage would be wise, and for how many years, and to what age? Additionally, his employer offers a 100% match on 3% of his uh, salary for retirement, and a three-quarter match on up to another 5% of his salary. I know the 100% match is a no-brainer. feel like the additional three-quarter matches, too. Would you have any concerns about maxing this out? So let's take these separately. Let's start out with the life insurance question. This is the fundamental reality of life insurance. You don't buy life insurance for yourself. And if I get one of you uh, people that push whole life and bank on yourself and all that crap emailing me about this, I'm going to ignore you. I've done this already. Uh, the math doesn't work. The only case I can make for whole life is in very, very high net wealth individuals uh, to avoid inheritance tax. And I can't even do that in the current Uh, environment because Trump has made it almost irrelevant. Uh, you have to be an extremely, extremely high net worth individual now. Uh, you know, we're talking 100 mil type net worth uh, to really make it where you would do And there'd be other things that you would do. So I, I, to me, whole life is dead. And it's where it belongs. It belongs dead. And we don't need any insurance on its life. It needs to die. So term is the way to go. The question is which term, how much, and why, and when? Well, Here's the deal. At his age, he could get about $100,000 worth of term insurance, probably without even having a health examination. As long as he doesn't have any kind of chronic illness or anything like that, you didn't mention it, so he probably doesn't, uh, about $15 a month. You know, right in under $180-ish a year per $100,000. And because it's so cheap, if he's going to get term insurance the minimum now you might find some other things you know he's to think about his future and things like this but the minimum amount i would recommend is 100 grand worth of life insurance and what that will do is we'll lock that rate in for about 30 years again it'll be somewhere between 13 and 15 dollars a month and i would pay it annually 
and I would set up a direct payment out of my bank account so I didn't forget about it when it comes around, and it would just be an expense in my life if I were him. The reason I say that, again, because if you buy $50,000, it's not going to cost much less. And so what would the purpose of that be right now if he doesn't get married, he doesn't have anybody he's responsible for, and something horrible happens and he dies? Well, you and the rest of the family would have no trouble uh, affording a funeral, uh, which is horrible to think about, but it's what you have to do, including things like if somebody wanted to be there that couldn't come, flying them in, etc. So it would be basically way more than necessary to handle his final expenses. The, the other side of it, though, is that rate, about $180 a year, is going to lock in for 30 years. So 31, 41, 51 years of age. So he'll have incredibly cheap insurance in the amount of at least $100,000 for 30 years. Now, that's probably what I would do if I were him. Because let's say that he meets someone and they hit it off, and they start heading down the road toward marriage, and he decides that he wants her to be looked after. It's something. And I've had friends pass away who had almost no life insurance, and I can tell you it sucks. And it always leaves the other partner in uh, a bad way. One who passed away had told her not to worry about it, taking care of it. And what he meant by taking care of it is his employer uh, had insurance on him. Turned out to be about $30,000, and they had just put about $30,000, and they went in debt for it into putting a pool and redoing their backyard and everything. So basically, all she was able to do out of his life insurance was give him a funeral and pay off the debt on this new install they had in the backyard. And that's just not the way you want to leave somebody. So it would be there. You might say then, Jack, why not, why not get a couple hundred, five hundred thousand? Hell, a million bucks at that price is so cheap. Well, the thing is for males, Until you hit 30, the price barely goes up. The price of $100,000 worth of life insurance for someone who's 29 is about $2 a month more than the price for a male non-smoker 21. $2 more a month. $24 more a year. So you can always add more. Um, I don't think he needs more than that right now. But I do think it would be a responsible thing to do. And he understand he's doing it for potentially his own future, but mostly in case something happened to him that everything could be taken care of. And maybe he has, you know, this is the other way to look at it. When you're this young, if you have little brothers or things like that, you know, if something happens to you, you know you're not going to be there and being able to leave them something behind before you've accumulated anything to leave them as an inheritance is another way to look at it. If he wants to buy more, he can. Here's some other options with life insurance. On our life insurance, Dorothy and I, we have term till 90. Term till 90. There's more than just 10-year term, 20-year term. There's declining term. There's all different flavors of life insurance. Term till 90 basically gets you an incredibly cheap insurance policy that you can keep until you're 90 years of age. And then it, it's gone. It is what it is, which means that If you get sick, if you have some kind of a problem, that you don't lose your insurance and that when you pass away, your, uh, your survivors will get that money. And, you know, we did that when we got married because we, needed, we knew we needed to have something for each other. And I don't believe in whole life. And it was about the longest term I could get. And as young as we were, it was stupid cheap. So that's another one to look at. And he might find that term to 90 for him is actually cheaper per $100,000 than 30-year term. Why would that be the case? Because they expect a 21-year-old to live a long time, and now they have a longer term of their customer. 
or it might cost more. It all depends on which company and these things change. But the beauty of that would be, well, what if he decides he doesn't need it? We'll stop paying for it. It's not a contract. Basically, you cancel it at that point. He could even, at some point in his life, see if somebody wants to buy it. There is a thing where people buy life insurance policies. So that would be another one to look at. There's also another life insurance policy type that I think people should really consider as just for insurance on the mortgage of a home. It's a very affordable way to insure that balance of your mortgage in addition to what other life insurance you leave behind for people. It's called declining term, and it generally is sold in blocks of either 30-year or 20-year. And the way it works is for the first year, you're insured for the full amount, and it declines in the amount that you have over time. This means that as you age and get closer to the possibility of death, the cost to the insurance company goes down. Why does this work so well for mortgages? You have a 20-year mortgage. You get 20-year declining term for the value of the underlying debt on the mortgage. This will ensure that when you die or if you die, I should say, if you're, you know, if you're, uh, you will die, but if you die during the term of this, that there'll be enough money there that your spouse will be able to just pay off the house. And that's one thing they will not have to worry about. Now, this is not the only life insurance you should have, but that's another product you can look at. There's some things that you want to look for in an insurance policy when you're buying term. Guaranteed renewable. So what that means is let's say that your son went out and bought $300,000 worth of life insurance right now after all of this consideration and just working out the numbers. And at 51, he decided he wanted to keep it. And he had become kind of ill. And it would be very hard for him to get another insurance policy. A guaranteed renewable policy will allow him to renew and simply not even take a, a physical exam. Now, there are two different forms of this. It is very rare anymore to find the first one I'm described, but it's good if you can, but sometimes it costs too much. They, they build against the risk into the cost. And that is where you would be able to renew for an equal number of years for the price that you're already paying. I have not seen that in a long time. The other form, which is more common, is You will pay, what at 51, he would pay for $300,000 worth of life insurance at that point, whatever any other generally healthy 51-year-old would pay, and he would be able to renew. There's also what's known as guaranteed renewable and convertible. I'm not very interested in this because I don't like whole life, but I can see a position where if you can get the whole life that is... Um, For the price of a completely healthy person when you're really freaking sick, it might make sense, maybe. Which means that not only do you guarantee that you can renew, but you can also convert. The reason I bring it up, though, that there are policies that are, that are uh, stated as guaranteed renewable and convertible. And that does not mean guaranteed renewable and or convertible. The only way that they guarantee the renewal is if you'll convert to whole life at that point. So you need to make sure that you know what you're looking at. As far as buying your insurance, this is a place where I still think a human being makes a lot of sense. Because if you go fill out a form on a website, you're going to get about 500 million phone calls. And so what you're looking for, and you know, a chamber of commerce or somewhere like that, a, a friend who uh, has his shit together is a good person to ask. What you're looking for, in my opinion, when you're buying life insurance, is an insurance broker. 
Okay, not an all-state agent, not a State Farm agent, etc. I actually love State Farm as an insurance company. I have State Farm as my homeowner's insurance. I have State. I've had used State Farm for business insurance. I have State Farm on my vehicles. I've been a State Farm customer since I got my first driver's license for my vehicles. They are a great company. I do not buy my life insurance from them because life insurance is one of the most heavily regulated industries there is. I have never heard of a person who had a life insurance policy with a company and then somebody died and then they didn't get their money. So you're going to get your money if the person passes away or if you pass away, the people you've left who are going to get their money. There's there's just not a thing where you know this life insurance company just says, hey, you didn't really die and we're not paying you. It just doesn't happen. So as long as you're talking about a top-rated insurance company, the only thing I care about is who has the policy I want and who's the cheapest. So if I go to my state farm agent, he's going to pre- present me the numbers that are available for life insurance for state farm and tell me that's the best because that's what he sells. He doesn't have the flexibility to sell me insurance from another company. So I'm not buying life insurance from him. I'm going to buy life insurance from the cheapest company that gives me the form of the insurance that I want. So hopefully that helps everybody, not just your son. Now, on the employer match, you did not specify to me what this is. His employer offers a 100% match on 3% of his salary for retirement and a three-quarter match on up to another 5% of his salary. Okay, I'm going to assume that this is for a 401k, not like purchasing company stock. Some companies still have, you know, you buy stock in the company you work for. That actually worked out really well for me in one job um, that I had because the company got bought out, and they got bought out at like $8 over the price of the stock. So that worked, and the stock was trading for like three bucks. So that was pretty good, and, and you, we could dump a big chunk of our salary in. But, you know, I think the statute of limitations is up. I didn't know it was coming, but I had a feeling it was coming. And so that was like I dumped the maximum in that quarter uh, that I could. And I also had some options and things like that, so it worked out. But I don't generally like putting a huge chunk of your retirement into company stock. I'm assuming that's not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about a 401k where we can diversify into a, a small handful of funds and things like that. Okay, If that's the case, as long as he can pay his bills, I would max out the three and the five. A 75% return on your money is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. If we can do 10% a year, we do really well. If we can get, and it's not even a 75% return on the money. It's 100% on 3%, and it is 75% on up to another 5%. So we actually need to work that out. I mean, overall, it's like an 87% return if we, if we figure that out, right? So that means if I'm, if I'm in this kid's company, right, 21 is a man, but the older you get, the more 21-year-olds are kids, right? If I'm in this kid's company and I'm him, and I'm putting away 8% of my money into my 401k, I am effectively getting an 87% return on that contribution. Um, so basically, I've taken care of a standard retirement goal of something like a 10% return for eight years. It's really not eight years. It's more like four and a half because it's not on, it's not compounding. But you see what kind of a stretch that gives you. So I would absolutely max that with one thing i got to say. And you know what it is if you've listened. 
almost every company today that offers a 401k will allow their individuals to choose a Roth or a conventional. Roth, always Roth, always Roth, always Roth. I think it is a bigger mistake to go into a conventional IRA or 401k today, especially as a young person, than it is to buy whole life insurance. And we know how I feel about that. It needs to die. There is no justification to be made here. Um, yeah, it'll save you a little bit on your tax bill right now, but you're talking about taking money and turning it into never taxed money. Never taxed money. I love never taxed money. That's your long-term retirement And the flexibility is there that, it, let's say, five years from now, he loses this job. He goes on about his business somewhere else, and he decides he wants to start a business. A sig Now, the, the, I believe that when you have a match like this, okay, that that is considered a gain inside the, the, the account. So you can't take the employer's contributions, but his contributions would be withdrawable as no penalties and no tax because he's already paid tax on it. That's one of the advantages of a Roth. So let's say he works at his first job for like 10 years. He's 31 years old. He's got a half a million bucks maybe saved up in there after 10 years. He could. It's possible. If he makes good decisions, the market does well. Let's say it's $200,000. let us say $75,000 of that is his contributions that have been in there long enough to get back. And he has you know some sort of real opportunity to start up a business He could take a portion of that with no penalties whatsoever invested in his business. Because while I agree with what John said to the last guy, that if you're taking money out of your savings that's for your retirement long term, you're going the wrong direction. That money needs to stay there. That's the entire point. If that money's coming out to be invested in business, it's going to create cash flow and longevity and resilience in your life. Now, it's to me, when money goes into a business, and I'm not talking about buying a nice car, calling it a company car, driving it around, And, and, and crapping your money away. I'm talking about truly investing it into the business so the business can function. I consider that money just as invested as I consider the money invested in, let's say, a stock market. I actually consider it a better investment because I personally feel that I'm a better bet than the companies in the S&P and the Dow Jones. I'm a better bet for myself. I'm not going to let myself down. I care about myself more than they ever will, that type of thing. So... Uh, there you go. I hope that all makes sense, and I hope it helps more than just the one guy asking the question. Hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Hope you enjoyed kind of the new segment stuff that's coming and all. Again, like, I am going to come out with more of this stuff and more of a formalized schedule on Monday. I'm also going to let you guys know, I mentioned I would have some new discount vendors uh, coming up. I actually have three. Uh, two of them are already in the MSB, though, and I might have just booked a fourth. They're probably going to come out Monday now, but two of them are already in the MSB. You can go see who they are if you want to. One is a really cool company that does herbal herbal salves and stuff like that. Been in business about five years, born right out of the TSP community. Awesome, awesome, awesome stuff, right? And then the other one, the firearms manufacturer and firearms accessory manufacturer as well. And they make a system for the AR-15 that is amazing. And if you use the discount code, For one of their systems, your membership's good for a couple years, man. It's covered itself. So you might want to just, if you want to know, before I make the formal announcement Monday who these companies are, uh, you can go check the benefits section of the MSB, and they're the first new two companies listed there, and I think you might be surprised. With that, let me remind you, one of the ways you can always support this show, of course, is to become a member of the MSB. All you got to do to do that is go to the Survival Podcast 
Click on members and sign up. Remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, and first responders, paramedics, firefighters, any of that stuff, you guys qualify for a discount. Email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line before you sign up, not after, and I will give you that discount code so you can save more money on a thing that already pays for itself. The other way is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com, where all the things that are recommended there are items I use, And I spent my money on, and if I didn't, I wouldn't recommend that you do so yourself. Um, so the other thing is it doesn't matter what you buy. As long as you start there, you help support us no matter what you eventually buy. So it's a painless way. Let me tell you about our item of the day today, though. Uh, and I'm going to give you yesterday's because I kind of skipped yesterday's in the segment, and they kind of go together. So yesterday's item of the day was these Tillicherry peppercorns uh, from India. Tillicherry is a region on the Malabar coast of India. And if it doesn't come from that region, like let's say San Marzano tomatoes, if they don't come from San Marzano, they're not San Marzano. If it doesn't come from the Champagne region of France, it's not really Champagne. If it doesn't come from the Burgundy really region of France, it's not really Burgundy. You, you, you know, Or Chianti, etc. in Italy. It's like that. This is the best pepper in the world. And it's by a company named Spicy World. And that's the one I recommended yesterday. So today, I recommended my pepper mill of choice made by a company called Fletcher's. The Fletcher's Federal Pepper Mill. Um, this is a thing that I found over 11 years ago now. I paid 50 bucks for mine. I went into like this gourmet food store because me and foodie, you know, uh, yeah, right? And I see this pepper mill, and it has this thing on it. It says, the last pepper mill you'll ever buy. And these mills were originally made under the name Vic Firth, who's a very famous drummer who made drumsticks. Like, dum -dum -dum -dum, drumsticks, right? And uh, now it's now Fletcher's has absorbed that, and they still make them the exact same way. I've ordered a new one. I've looked at them side by side. They're built exactly the same. This little tag said, the last pepper mill you'll ever buy. $50, bucks, $49.99. Uh, cuss under the breath, blah, 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 grumble, grice. But I didn't put it down. I had just thrown away a pepper mill that didn't work worth a shit. And it was probably the second pepper mill in two years I had thrown away. Yeah, they're 15 bucks, but you're throwing them away every year, and they don't really work very good. So I'm walking over, and I see this little piece of propaganda looking at me, the last pepper mill you ever buy. That better damn well be. And I went ahead, and I spent 50 bucks on a pepper mill. I still have it. still works beautifully. It works as good as the day I got it. And we talk a lot about money and money management and one of my laws of life. Always be frugal, never be cheap. Cheap always costs more in the long run. Frugality is about the best thing you can find at the price point that works for you. And we factor in the lifetime cost. So the lifetime cost of this pepper mill to me is $50. Bucks. I've had it 11 years. I've paid a little less than $5 a year to use it, and I still have it. When I bought a $15 pepper mill, and it lasted one year, it cost me $15 to use it for the year, and it sucked for most of that year, and it made me angry, and I threw it away, and I rumble grice, and went out and bought the right thing. So those two items go together, but you always support us when you do your online shopping at T-Spaz. Next up, song of the day. I called an audible today. Uh, John, uh, John Adam who does my program list for the music, gave me a song by Pat Benatar. And I was really like, wow, that's great. I love Pat Benatar. That chick rocks, man. And I remember she uh, she did a show when I was living up in Hot Springs. And it was like, she's like six, late 60s or something by then, or maybe early 70s. And she rocked ass. 
man, like 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 a young person, like hardcore, like in all the weather and the heat and everything, and it was like amazing. And I listened to the song; it's like this real high pitched version, that some music she did in the '80s. It just huh, and it had this chorus. Like, sorry, can't do it. So I was like, man, I need. After listening to that, I needed something soulful, right? That was centering. And I also thought, you know, one of the greatest artists I think has come out in recent times is Chris Stapleton. Uh, just done countries, done some crossover stuff. And there's this song that I discovered uh, a little while ago that he does, and it's called What Are You Listening To? And it, I just think it's one of the most incredible songs I've heard as far as musical talent. And this is a live acoustic version of it, by the way. So there's no synthesizers, no studio adjustments. This is a lot. It's him and a guitar. And it's just fantastic. But what I really wanted to give you this song for the day going into a weekend is this is why we do a music segment. This song's message is why we do a music segment. Now, in this scenario, he's sitting there listening to this song and he's missing this, this person he used to be in a relationship with. And he's wondering what she's listening to. And, of course, there's some sadness to that, and that's where a lot of the soul in this song comes from, and along with this guy's voice. But what it's really about is the universality of music, that everybody everywhere loves music, one way or another. Now, we might like different kinds, but there is a common bridge in humanity that comes together through the storytelling that is music. Great thought as we rock on into a weekend. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I put that record on Girl, you know what song And I let it play Is it a love song about someone new?